Good to see each one of you here this morning. We do have the choir loft if we need extra space, only if you promise not to shoot spitballs at your pastor from behind. But if you uh, do feel like you need more room, you're welcome to make your way to the choir loft. If anyone else comes in, I guess you could escort them to the choir loft, Matt. Uh, Some of you maybe have never been in the choir loft before. So they give you an opportunity to say that you sat in the choir loft. That. But it is good to have you here. It's good to have Pastor Tiago back with us, him and his family. And we look forward to greater fellowship with them over these next three months. We have a short time to experience that wonderful fellowship with them, so we will take advantage of that. Uh, he will share with us a little bit after our service this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. How are you going to do our... Thank you. This is for our members unable to be with us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bow before you again with thankful hearts for allowing us the privilege to gather together on this, the Lord's Day. We pray, Father, that our hearts are prepared to truly worship you by studying your word. We thank you for the time that we've already had together in singing hymns and reading your word. And we pray, Father, that your spirit is meeting with us this day, for we know that all is vain unless your spirit comes. So we pray for his guidance, his understanding, his illumination of our minds so that we might receive your word. As we think upon this important subject today of the Lord's Supper and the inauguration of it, We pray, Father, that our hearts would be encouraged, that we would remember all that Christ has accomplished for us and that we would receive Him. We thank You, Father, for the great salvation that He has brought to us. We pray that as the gospel is preached not only here but throughout the world that many would come into Your kingdom. We thank You, Father, that You are saving Your people from their sins and You continue to do that as the gospel is proclaimed. We pray for those that are unable to be with us this day, Father. You know their reasons and their needs. We pray that you would meet those, especially those, Father, unable to be with us due to their situation and due to this virus. And we pray that your blessings would be upon them even as they watch this sermon from their home today. We pray, Father, for our country. We know that we live in a very sinful day. We see great evil And we pray that you would bring it to an end. We pray, Father, that we would be used of you to be light in this dark world, to proclaim your truth to others. We pray also, Father, for those who are serving you faithfully elsewhere, especially those on the mission field. We pray that you would protect them and watch over them and use them to continue to share the gospel so that many would come into your kingdom. Again, we ask that your blessings would be upon us during this time. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to Mark chapter 14. And we will pick up where we left off last week. Mark chapter 14, begin reading with verse 22 through verse 26. Mark 14, beginning with verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, 
eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Surely I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Last week we saw how the disciples were led to this upper room that they are in now. It was in God's providence and He had given them a message that they would to look for a man. As I mentioned to you, normally a woman carried the pitcher of the water, but Jesus said the signal would be that there were a man with a pitcher of water and you were to follow him and you will follow him to a place and there at that place ask the master where is the place for the master and his disciples to have the Lord's Supper. We also saw how Judas already had betrayed Jesus in going to the chief priest, but Jesus did not let him off the hook very easily because we see that while they were eating, he revealed that he knew who had betrayed him. And he gave that very chilling warning there in verse 21, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good that that man, if he had never been born. That should have caused Judas to repent. That should have convicted him. But we know that it did not. We see that even in this very supper that Jesus exposes him and Judas leaves to Go and betray him. Now in John chapter 13, verses 23 through 30, we see that Peter told John, who was leaning on the breast of Jesus, to ask Jesus who it is who is going to betray him. And Jesus told John it was the one whom he dipped the bread in the sauce and handed it to. And of course, he handed it to Judas. And then we had those words... Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. So we see that Judas is not present for the inauguration of the Lord's Supper. After he leaves, Jesus begins to institute the Lord's Supper. And we have it recorded in all three Gospels, but not in John. In John's Gospel, instead, he records the teachings of Jesus that took place there in the upper room. Matter of fact, it begins at John chapter 13, verses 31, and ends in John chapter 17, at the end of the chapter, in verse 26. And he records the valuable lessons that none of the other three synoptic gospels record. He records the new commandment, to love one another as he has loved them. He records in that gospel also that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He also records how the Father in him or one, the promise of the Holy Spirit, how He is the vine and we are the branches, how the Holy Spirit works in us, and how their sorrow will be turned to joy after His death, burial, and resurrection, and how they will overcome the world. And then in chapter 17, we have the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. All of that took place there in the upper room. I think we often forget that, 
when we read the synoptic gospels and forget about what John tells us in his gospel. So all of these things are being taught by Jesus after the inauguration of the Lord's Supper. Thomas, I mean Jeff Thomas states that we should be cautious of those who push for a sacramentalist movement over the last 150 years seeking to focus worship away from the Bible onto the table. Now what does he mean by that? Well he goes on and says that that movement has no support from the Apostle John in either of his gospel letters. And some churches have even sought to move the pulpit aside and place the table at the center. But we have to realize that the gospel and the Bible, the infallible Word of God, must remain at the center of the stage. Now, we only have the words of Jesus in those four verses in all three of the synoptic gospels. And of course, Paul is the only one who mentions about the Lord's Supper in his writing to the Corinthians. So the major emphasis in the gospel is on what? It's on preaching and prayer. And of course, Jesus himself is doing much of the preaching and much of the praying in the gospels. So when we come to worship, our focus is to be on God's word, not on a ceremony but on the living Savior. We even see in Acts, as far as the church is concerned, it is full of preaching, evangelism, and baptism with very few references to Holy Communion. Now, I'm not saying that the Lord's Supper isn't important. What I'm saying is some tend to emphasize the Lord's Supper and misrepresent it. And of course, we know that Catholicism, the Roman Catholic Church, has done that throughout its history, even with the doctrine of transubstantiationism. Now, if you don't know what that is, just to boil it down, clearly it is when they believe that Jesus' body and His blood are literally taken. It is turned into that when the priest uh, says what he says over the bread and the wine. And of course, John Whitcliffe stood against that teaching as well as other teachings in the 1300s, and it cost him dearly. He died in 1384 after a stroke in the uh, age of 60s. They don't know exactly what his age was because they don't know exactly what year he was born, but they know, know he was in his 60s. But in 1413, the Council of Constant declared John Wycliffe a heretic. I've said it before. It's interesting when truth is considered heresy and heresy is considered truth. And of course, that was the case there in the 1400s as far as the Roman Catholic Church. They not only declared him as a heretic, but they also banned all of his writings. And if anyone had them, of course, they would be in danger of death themselves or imprisonment. All of his writings they could find were burned. After his death, of course, they exhumed his body from the sacred ground that it had been buried in. Of course, they called it sacred ground. And then they burned it. And then they scattered the ashes on the River Swift. But what was interesting is the River Swift flowed into the Avon, and the Avon into Severe 
which flowed into the Bristol Channel, which flowed then into the oceans of the world. Whitcliffe was considered the morning star. And it was symbolic, as far as his ashes were concerned, that his truth and his teaching scattered throughout the world. And we're thankful for that because of the Protestant Reformation that came about as a result of what John Whitcliffe taught and preached. Others, of course, spoke out against those who exalted communion above the infallible Word of God and falsely believed that it was the literal body and blood of Christ. Now, of course, today there are some that have gone to the other extreme. They have no reverence whatsoever for the Lord's Supper. We kind of seen this in our quarantine as far as churches are concerned when we've had to meet at home and use our um, computers to watch a sermon. And we have seen those who have observed the Lord's Supper through Facebook or Zoom with some members even using orange juice and crackers. Now, folks, let me tell you something. We will not do that here at our church. First of all, we don't believe that you are to do communion in that manner as far as over Facebook or over Zoom. Second, you are to use the elements prescribed in Scripture, which is the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. But again, we see how some use the Lord's Supper very irreverently. Now, I know that we do not observe the Lord's Supper weekly. There are those who observe it every week, but we observe it the first Sunday of every month, which is a good reflection, I believe, of the significance of it in the New Testament, and it helps us to become very sincere in our taking of it. I know those would argue me with me that they think we ought to take it every single Sunday, but I'm just sharing what I believe our balance is here at Grace Baptist Church. Uh, we don't want to end up like the high church, those congregations who put too much emphasis on the Lord's Supper, see it too much as a ritual, or those others who put little emphasis and even understand the real purpose of it. And I believe looking at Mark chapter 14 helps us to understand the importance of the Lord's Supper and how we need to look at it as Jesus introduced this new element into the Passover feast. Now we may have, he may have stood up at some point and held the bread in one hand and held the cup in the other hand and spoke these words that we have recorded here in Mark as well as the other synoptic gospels. But we see that Jesus introduces a unique memorial for Himself. He is stating how important it is that they, those disciples that were in that upper room, not forget that they remember who He is, what He has taught them, what He's about to do for the rest of their life. He wants to make sure that they do not put Him out of His mind, but that they remember Him. And He's giving them a picture. This picture conveys to us what it means to be saved, what it means to be in Christ, what it means to receive Christ. For the Lord's Supper reveals to us the difference between life and death. 
the difference between forgiveness and guilt, and the difference between heaven and hell. When one really grasps the true meaning of the Lord's Supper, he receives Christ. He receives assurance of his salvation. And it's in coming to the table that one is strengthening his faith and renewed in his spirit as he does what Christ says, as he does what Christ commands, as far as remembering. So the basic meaning of the Lord's Supper is salvation, including pardon from sin and glorious eternal life in Christ Jesus that we receive. We receive that free gift that Christ has offered. Only Jesus Christ is able to offer us salvation. And we must decide whether or not we will receive Him or reject Him. The psalmist said in Psalms 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusted in the Lord. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3, very familiar words to me because this, these are the words of a hymn as well as a song that I sang in my sophomore recital many, many years ago. I'm not going to sing them to you, so don't worry about that. But listen to what Isaiah says. Lo, everyone whose thirst comes to the water, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk. Without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread, or your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. For sure, mercies of David. And then Revelation 22, 17. And the Spirit and the bride said, Come, and let him hear say, Come, and let him who thirsts come, and whoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Each of these verses can be connected to receiving the Lord's Supper, which involves receiving Christ. What we have in Mark is our Lord offering Himself to all who receive Him. You indicate that you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior by taking the bread and drinking the cup until He returns. Throughout the Gospel, Jesus said, I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. I am the light. In John's gospel, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus preaching to the multitude, beginning there in verse 32, He said to them, Most surely I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, 
But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to Him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Then Jesus begins to explain further what he is trying to get across. And the majority became very nervous at what Jesus said. Not only did they become nervous, they began to kind of peel off and reject what he said. And Jesus, and I want to pick up with what Jesus said, because they were saying these things were hard to accept in verse 51 and following. He says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give in my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews, therefore, quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So we see they didn't understand. Then Jesus said to them, Most surely I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of God and drink of His blood, you shall have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the Father, as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. So Jesus clearly explains to them that He is the bread of life. He is the vine. Now that's our introduction. Our sermon maybe is probably about as long as our introduction, so I don't want you to worry. And there's three things that I want us to look at that helps us to understand the importance of the Lord's Supper in our life. First of all, the Lord's Supper is the ultimate Passover. As we have studied John chapter 14, it's clear that this is taking place in Passover week. They're coming to the day of Passover. Now, in doing this, Jesus is teaching them that the Passover will no longer be needed to be observed. It will be fulfilled by Him. It will be fulfilled by His death, burial, and resurrection. So therefore, the Passover will be over with. Now, only in John's Gospel did we learn that the Last Supper was on the night before the slaying of the Passover lamb which was taking place the next day. John 18, 28 tells us that as they were carrying Jesus from trial to trial and they come to Pilate's headquarters, that the chief priest and them did not go in because if they had gone in, they would not have been allowed to observe the Passover. So we see that that is the time frame. It's right before they are about to observe the Passover. So John tells us 
that Jesus' death on the cross was the same day that that had occurred. At the same time that thousands upon thousands of Jews, as I've shared with you before, there were probably over a million in Jerusalem at this particular time to observe the Passover. And there when the lamb was being slain in those households there in Jerusalem, in that evening meal after three, Christ was on the cross dying at that very moment. He was fulfilling the very thing that they were observing by going to the cross. That's why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For indeed Christ, our Passover, our Paschal Lamb, was sacrificed for us. Now we read Exodus 12, verses 3 through 14 this morning as far as our Old Testament Scripture reading. And we saw how the Passover meal was instituted and what the Jews were to do. And they were to continue to do this, not only that night that they were delivered from Egypt, but they were to continue to do this every year. Of course, they were unable to do it while they were in captivity. But on that particular night when it was instituted, the death angel came and he killed all of the firstborn of the Egyptians. Not only the firstborn of people, but all firstborn of the animals. Now why did that happen? Why did the death angel kill all of the firstborn of the Egyptians' people and animals? Because the Egyptians was killing God's firstborn. Who was God's firstborn? He had made His covenant with Israel. So therefore, spiritual Israel was His firstborn. But the blood over the doorposts and the lintel kept the death angel from killing the Jews' firstborn. But in the fullness of time, God slayed His only begotten Son on their behalf. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? So God spared the firstborn of Israel that night but He did not spare His only begotten Son later. And this supper reminds us of the Lamb slain. Pierced body representing the broken bread and the shed blood represented by the fruit of the vine. The death angel will not take your life because the shed blood of Christ covers all who by faith have looked to Christ, all who have received Christ. Of course, it's not physical blood that is put over our doorpost and our lintel, but it's the blood of Christ that is spiritually applied to us when we receive Christ. Therefore, death as Paul tells us, has lost its sting for all who are in Christ, for all who are covered by His blood, for all who have 
received Him as their Lord and Savior. The Lord's Supper is the fulfillment of 1,400 years of observing the Passover. As John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. Jeff Thomas said, The Lord's Supper is not some feeble attempt on our part to keep Christ's memory alive. The Lord's Supper has been instituted by our Savior as a rite of communion with the living Christ. He continues to meet with us and bless us in this special way. So as we observe this morning the Lord's Supper, we need to keep that in mind, that He communes with us. We commune with the living Christ and He blesses us in a special way. Second, the Lord's Supper is inauguration of the new covenant as Jesus clearly points out in this passage in Mark chapter 14. There in verse 24, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. A covenant has to be inaugurated. It's an agreement, as we know, that has to be implemented. And the word covenant is not used between uh, God and Adam in the very beginning, but there, there wasn't a covenant. There was an agreement, even though the word covenant is not used. The first time the word covenant is used is when, children? In the flood, remember what did God do? He made a flood with who? Noah. And He gave him a sign that He would keep that covenant. And what was that sign? What's in the sky after the rain? A rainbow. So He, he made a covenant and He gave that sign that He promised that He would never destroy the world again by water. And many more covenants were made after that by God. And God was faithful in every single covenant. He always has done His part in keeping the covenant. And in the covenant of grace, God came down to do what we could not do. He had to come down to do what we could not do so that we might have salvation. Westminster Shorter Catechism says, asked the question, did God leave all mankind to perish in the state of sin and misery? God, having out of His mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. God fulfilled His covenant in the covenant of grace. God saves man because of who He is, not because of who we are. If God did not do it, we would not be saved. As Romans 4, 5 says, But to Him who does not work but believes on Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is accounted for righteousness. So we must believe God will do what God said He will do. Once we look to Jesus Christ, God counts us as righteous. 
Not because of something we do, but because of what Christ did. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifice, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. So what is he talking about there? The Old Testament sacrifice of the animals. Those animals could not make anyone perfect, he's saying. For then would they have not ceased to be offered for the worshipers, but purged would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifice for sins, you have no pleasure. Then I say, Behold, I have come, and the volume of the book is, is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So you and I are sanctified. We are righteous in the sight of God. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty once for all. That's another reason why we stand against what the Roman Catholic Church holds to. There was only a once for all. It's not a continuous sacrifice that is made. It was once for all. So therefore, the new covenant fulfilled the old covenant entirely and was inaugurated by Jesus Christ as stated here in Mark chapter 14. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice for sin. We are all familiar with Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, by righteous servants shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus Christ was the final offering, as I just mentioned, once for all. Therefore, you ask God to hear your prayers based on what? How do you end your prayers, children? Hopefully you end them in the name of Jesus Christ. Christ in His name. And when you come to die, what will you offer to God? What you've done? Never! Because what you've done is as filthy rags. What you offer when you come and you lay on your deathbed is what? What Christ has done. That you have received Him. That you have received His work. 
So therefore, you can only plead when you come to that day of death what Christ has done, as Hebrews 9.22 says, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, what? There is no remission. No remission of our sins without the shedding of the blood of Christ. As 1 John 1, 7-9 says, But if we walk in the light as He is in light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then 1 John 2, 2. And He Himself is our propitiation for our sin. He satisfied the wrath of God. And not ours only, but also for the whole world. No one comes to God except through Jesus Christ. He is the only one that has paid the sins for His people. He is the mercy seat that is covered with blood, and He is the one that has turned away the wrath of God. He paid the penalty so that God is satisfied fully with that payment. So God looks at all those that are in Christ with the greatest fatherly love that is possible because Christ is our sin offering. There he says in verse 24, which is shed for many. So Christ's blood was a sacrifice shed for you and me who have received Him. Countless millions who have received Him. His blood was shed for them. His blood was shed for all who will be in heaven, all who have cried out in repentance and asked for forgiveness. His blood was shed for them. As Revelation 21-24 says, the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. Nations, a number uncountable, have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And you may ask the question, am I included in the elect? Well, let me say that that is not the right question that you need to be asking. The question that you need to be asking is, will I eat of His flesh? Will I drink of His blood? Will I eat of the bread and drink of the fruit of the vine which stands stands for the death of Jesus Christ in my place? The resurrection of Jesus Christ to give me new life Will I receive Him? As John 1, 12 says, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. To those who believed in His name. My question for you this morning is, Have you believed in His name? Have you believed in Him? Have you received Him? 
Do you see Him as your Savior? Do you see Him as your Lord? All God asks of us to do is what? Believe. Cry out like the disciples, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Have you trusted in Christ? Will you receive Him today? Will you receive Him as you take of the bread and of the fruit of the vine? For there is room at the cross for you. As the hymn says, the cross upon which Jesus died is a shelter in which he can hide, we can hide. And its grace so free is sufficient for me, and deep is its fountain as wide as the sea. There's room at the cross for you. There's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. Yes, there's room at the cross for you. Though millions have found Him as a friend and have turned from their sin, they have sinned. The Savior still waits to open the gate and welcome a sinner before it's too late. There's room at the cross for you. The hand of my Savior is strong. The love of my Savior is long. Through sunshine and rain, through loss and in grain, the blood flows from Calvary to cleanse every stain. There's room at the cross for you. There's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. Yes, there's room at the cross for you. Why? Why would you reject Him and not receive Him this day when there's room at the cross for you? Let us pray. Father, we thank You for such a great salvation. We thank You for such a great Savior. One who has freely offered Himself for us to receive. And how I pray that we would receive Him. That we would receive Him as we take of the fruit of the vine and of the bread this morning. Knowing that He is our Savior. 
and that he gives us grace. Stir our hearts. Convict us of our sins. Calls us to cry out to thee. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.